Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Acts chapter 7. We're going to do the first 16 verses of Acts 17 in this audio. Acts 7 in this audio. In our previous chapter, chapter 6, we saw the seven selected to serve, and we saw Stephen seized. And now in Acts 7, we're going to hear Stephen's defense before the Sanhedrin. And at the end, we're going to see Stephen Stone. I'm not going to get to all that in this audio. The whole chapter is concerned with Stephen. I'm just going to do the first 16 verses today. We start in verse 1, Acts 7. Is this true? The high priest asked. Well, this, of course, is referring to the previous chapter, Acts 6, 11. Then they, the Sanhedrin, persuaded some men to say, We heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so the high priest says, Is this true? Of course, they were the ones that stirred up the witnesses. Acts 6, 13. They also presented false witnesses who said, This man does not stop speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So here's the charge against Stephen. You're blaspheming against Moses, you're blaspheming against God, you're speaking against the temple, and you're speaking against the law. Well, let's just summarize what happened here. Of course, Stephen said, as we'll see, I think it was in the previous chapter, he said, it might have been this chapter actually, he said that God doesn't need a place of a temple to worship in because the heavens are his footstool, and he was trying to to argue against the Jewish idea that God is located in one place. And then, of course, they took that and accused him of saying he wanted to tear the temple down, which he never said. Then they said Stephen was teaching against the law. Well, he was probably, although it doesn't say so explicitly, he was probably teaching against the Pharisees' traditional teachings, their laws, their traditions, their commandments, the traditions of men, which, of course, Jesus constantly preached against too, and they accused Jesus of the same thing. But no, he was not speaking against the law of Moses, not speaking against Moses. He was speaking against the perversion of the law of Moses by the traditions of the Pharisees. So if you're speaking against, you're saying that, that if, if people are saying that Stephen wants to tear the temple down, well, who set up the instructions for the temple? That's Moses. So if you want to tear the temple down, you're against Moses. And if you're against Moses, you're against God. And if you want to tear the law down, the so-called traditions of men, oh, that came from Moses, Stephen's enemies said, so now you're against Moses. And if you're against Moses, you're against God. And therefore, you are blaspheming. That is the way the accusations went. And of course, it's absolute nonsense. Who was this high priest that was asking whether these false witnesses' charges were true? It could be Caiaphas. It could be Annas. We don't know. NIV Study Bible says it's probably Caiaphas. I think that's probably true. He was, after all, the current high priest. Annas was a former high priest. Now, John Gill points out there was a color of justice here because the high priest at least gave Stephen a chance to answer. He said, is this true? I think it's more color than justice. He's trying to make it look right because they were trying to railroad Stephen. I mean, come on. There was nothing honest about these people. They were creeps. They were judicial murderers. One might wonder, how did Luke get such a full, detailed account of Stephen's defense since he wasn't there? Well, John Gill says he may have actually been there, who knows, but Gill says further that probably Luke got the account from Paul, who was, we know, present. Acts 7, verse 2, brothers and fathers, he, Stephen, said. You notice how he starts out, brothers and fathers, very respectful to his Jewish inquisitors. Stephen continues, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. Now, Stephen is going to give a lot of details about Jewish history, which all of them would know. In fact, a lot of us who've gone to Sunday school know. And so it's easy to get lost in the details. 
what was the point of uh, Stephen's defense? I'm going to read you a good summary of it in a website. I don't know who wrote this website, but it's a good summary. The point, it's called divineviewpoint.com. Here's the quote. Its point, Stephen's sermon's point, is an indictment of condemnation to the Sanhedrin for their rejection of not just the Messiah, but for their constant rejection of God. Stephen points out that they have not had respect for the Torah. They have not had respect for the temple because over the years of Jewish history, they have even brought idols from other nations in and set them up in the temple. They have been disrespectful of, of Moses for they have not obeyed him. And ultimately, all of this reveals that they have been blasphemous of God and they have violated God's commandments to worship him and him alone again and again and again through their history. So that's why we have a long, detailed historical account. And you will notice that Stephen is turning the charges around. Oh, you saying I'm against Moses? You're saying I'm blaspheming God? No, you, Sanhedrin, are against Moses and you, Sanhedrin, are blaspheming God. All right, so let's go back and start Stephen's account of Jewish history. He says, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That was in Ur. Before he settled in Haran, Ur is right down there near the Persian Gulf in the Mesopotamian Valley, present-day Iraq, north and slightly west of there in present-day Syria is Haran. The remains of ISIS hasn't, ISIS hasn't destroyed them yet. I think I heard that ISIS did wreck some of the archaeological remains there, which is a shame. And Haran and Syria, and went from Haran into the Promised Land. I think Shechem was where he first landed, in Canaan. Now Abraham's call came when he was in Ur, because Stephen says the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's in Ur. Genesis 15:7. He, Yahweh, also said to him, Abraham, I am Yahweh, who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Chaldeans, an old name for the people that used to live in what became Babylon in the valley, the Mesopotamian valley. Nehemiah 9, 7, you are Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. So those two scriptures, we don't see a call from God expressly stated, as Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out, but it is clearly implied. So Stephen is, is correct here. He said when he says that God, the glory of God appeared, to Abraham, which basically means God called Abraham out of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia at first and later out of Haran. Perhaps God called him from Ur and then renewed that call to Abraham in Haran. doesn't say, but we can in, in, infer that. Acts 7.3, and said to him, the subject of that, and said to him is the God of glory. The God of glory said to him, said to Abraham, get out of your country and away from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. And this is something that is often overlooked. It's a hard thing to pull up roots and leave your country, your relatives, your friends, your business, your job, the things you're used to, the things that make you nostalgic, and to go to a totally strange place. I have somewhat done that when I left South Carolina to go to China for over 20 years. It's hard. It's real hard. In fact, it's so hard that you can't even talk about it to people because they don't know what you're talking about. You have to do it to experience it, to what it's like to get uprooted and alienated, even if you love the place you're going to, which I did, actually. Abraham, on the other hand, was going to a place where he was not only a foreigner, he didn't have any land and status and money, and the religion was pagan and opposed to his belief in Yahweh, so he went to a very, very nasty place. Of course, I went to a communist country, but... No, that, as bad as that was, it was nothing like what Abraham did. 
When God said to Abraham, get out of your country, Stephen is quoting Genesis 12:1. The Lord said to Abram, go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. Now there's a small problem here when Abraham, or when God said to Abraham, get out from your land in Genesis 12:1. That was spoken in Iran, in Syria. But Stephen, in our verse in Acts 7, verse 2, said that it was in Ur that God appeared to Abraham. In verse 2, it says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran. Acts 12, 2 has this appearance. It, it, it Genesis 12, 1, I'm sorry, has this appearance in Haran, if you look at the context there. The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house in the land I will show you. So, here is how you can reconcile that. Genesis 12, 1 was spoken in Haran, but that was a renewal of the original call that was in Ur. This is the NIV Study Bible and John Gill's solution to that. Now, when Abraham was in Ur, he didn't know where he was going. Hebrews 11:8 by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and went out to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. But John Gill points out when he got up to Haran in Syria, he did know. Because in verse 3, Stephen says, come to the land that I will show you, Acts 7, verse 3. Come to the land that I will show you. So anyway, whether it was in Ur or Haran or whether the call was repeated, I suspect it was repeated twice, we're not going to get on Stephen for making a mistake. Verse 4 and 5. And by the way, even if he did make a mistake, that has no implication for inerrancy because Luke is inerrantly recording what Stephen spoke, but Luke could inerrantly record an error. That does not impact the doctrine of inerrancy at all. Acts 7, verses 4 through 5. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. That's Abraham. Land of the Chaldeans, of course, is later Babylonia, Mesopotamian Valley, or down there near the Persian Gulf, where the Tigris and Euphrates River, rivers came together. He settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, that was Terah, God had him move to this land you now live in. That would be Israel. He didn't give him, and the you he's referring to is you Sanhedrin guys, you're living here in Israel. He, God, didn't give him, Abraham, an inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, but he promised to give it to him as a possession. There's your famous land promise, promised land. He promised to give it, the land, to him as a possession and to his descendants after him, even though he was childless, which, of course, shows Abraham's faith. He inherited a promise, even though he couldn't see how he was going to get it, so that showed faith. Now, this was a tough trial for Abraham to walk into this foreign place right there with no inheritance. It took a lot of faith for him to go from not one foot of land to a whole country. And that's what he did, too. Before he died, he had, well, actually, he didn't have the whole country. He had that in faith, too. But he, he at least he was rich, and he had a couple of places. He had Shechem in Hebron, or at least the cave of Machpelah in Hebron near the Oaks of Mamre. But at any rate... Abraham was faithful. He was, he's a definition of faith, as it says in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews. Now, I know uh, Stephen says that Abraham was not given an inheritance, not even a foot of ground. Now, he did purchase some small parcels in Canaan, as I mentioned, at Hebron. He had to buy them. It wasn't through God's gift. He had to buy it. So you're not going to get Stephen for an error there either. Whereas the scriptures about the promised land, you don't remember the three promises that God made to Abraham, land, offering, and blessings to the world. Here's the land, here is 
a promise of the land. Genesis 12:7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Famous land promise, Genesis 12:7, Genesis 13:15. For I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. So you see, the land promise was inscripturated. It was in the scripture. Now, Stephen says from there, from Haran, after his father God, after his father died, that was Terah, God had him move, God had Abraham move to, to Israel after his father died. Well, some rabbis accused Stephen of making a mistake. Follow the famous Jewish philosopher also says Stephen made a mistake. Well, Jameson Fawcett Brown de- deals with this by saying, yes, it's true that Abraham left Haran while Terah was still living, but he says that it wasn't Abraham's exit from Haran that happened after Terah's death. Rather, it was the settlement of Canaan that happened after Terah's death, which means that Terah died while Abraham was on the way to the promised land. So when Stephen says, from there, from Haran, after Abraham's father, his Abraham's father died, God had him moved to the land. His father died before he moved into the land of Canaan died while he was on the way. Now, all of this assumes that somehow you can prove that Terah was still living when Abraham left the run. I don't know how these critics prove that because I haven't investigated that clearly. I just take their word for it that Terah was still living when Abraham left. But of course, if he was dead, it's not even an issue. But if he was living, he could have died on the way. And then Abraham moves into Israel after his father Terah died. We go to Acts 7 verse 6. God spoke in this way. His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them 400 years. Now, this verse right here is one of a series of verses that's involved in a bodacious harmonization problem, and of course, the liberals love to jump on this and say that there are errors in the Bible. Now, this is a particular difficult one, and I've summarized it in about three-quarters of a page of notes. I'm going to take the time to go through what I think is a relatively simple hopefully not oversimplified, solution to the problem. So here's some background. It was 430 years from the time of the promise to Abraham and Haran to the Exodus. And, of course, it was just a little bit of time since Abraham went from Haran to, to Shechem in the promised land. So let's just say from the first time that Abraham arrived in Israel to the time that Moses left on the Exodus is 430 years. Now, It says in verse 6 here in Acts 7, His descendants would be strangers in a foreign country. That's Abraham's descendants would be strangers in a foreign country, and they would enslave and oppress them 400 years. Well, it sounds like the foreign country is Egypt, and that they would be enslaved and oppressed over 400 years, but but Abraham's descendants were not in Israel for 430 years. They were in Israel, most of the people say 215 by adding up dates in Genesis. I'm going to take that that as true from the time that Joseph entered, or perhaps Jacob, I can't remember whether it was Jacob or Joseph, but by the time one of them entered and by the time they left, Moses left in the Exodus, it was 215 years. So obviously that can't be, that's not 400 years. So we got to, we've, we've got to start back with Abraham, not with Jacob or Joseph, but Abraham, and they would be strangers in a foreign country, and that foreign country can't just be Egypt. It's got to be Egypt and Canaan. So if you back it up from the time that Abraham entered into Canaan, he and his descendants were in Canaan and Egypt for 430 years, okay? Well, that still doesn't get us out of the... We still have a problem because 
This verse, Acts 7, 6, said that they would be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Well, the simplest way to reconcile that is to say 400 years is a round-off error for 430 years. That's what the NIV Study Bible says. I think that's what John Gill wants to say. And I can go along with that. There's another way to reconcile it. Because this verse says they would be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. The first notice of any kind of oppression from foreigners would be the Arabs. That would be Abraham's own descendant Ishmael, who started who started coming after Abraham and Isaac. Remember, after uh, Ishmael was born, that wild guy Ishmael. Well, actually, between the time that that Ishmael started oppressing Abraham, was exactly 400 years. So that would explain that. The round off error is the easiest way to explain it. In other words, the reason it doesn't say 400. 30 years here is either because of round, a round off because Stephen is just rounding off the 430 years or it's because he's not counting the time from when Abraham first arrived at Shechem but he's counting from the time that he started getting enslaved and oppressed by by the non-believers in the land of Israel which happened at the time of Ishmael which was exactly 400 years before the exodus okay so that that takes care of that verse right there now, I'm going to go a little bit deeper here. I'm going to quote you three relevant scriptures that deal with this problem of 400 years, or 430 years. We see in Exodus 12, 40 through 41, the time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that same day, all the Lord's divisions went out from the land of Egypt. First problem. It says, that this is the Holman Christian Study Bible translation. The first problem is, it says the Israelites lived in Egypt 430 years. We know that if you assume that Abraham was an Israelite, he didn't live in Egypt 430 years. He was down there a little while, but not 430 years. You have to go all the way back to the time he showed up in Canaan land, all the way to the Exodus before you get 430 years. So there's a problem there. Now, the King James translation translates Exodus 12:40 this way. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And that gets rid of the problem because the King James has sojourning is referring indefinitely and that could indefinitely refer to Canaan as well as Egypt. You can put Canaan and Egypt together and you got 430 years. So that would take care of the problem. So it could be a translation problem. Now I got curious about the translation of that verse and I went and looked in the Septuagint and I found out that the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew has, uh, they lived in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, 430 years. It's explicitly in there and in the land of Canaan, which, of course, would take care of the discrepancy. But the surprising thing to me is I looked at every English, I looked at a bunch of English translations. They all leave out in the land of Canaan. And I don't understand why. Unless the unless they're using the Masoretic text, which don't have the hundred in the land of Canaan, the Septuagint does. I sent off an email to my good friend who has a Ph.D. in biblical languages from Columbia International University. I've not received an answer back, and so you are not going to get the benefit of his learned discussion of this problem. So I'm just going to leave it with you. I just really think it's interesting. The Septuagint solves the problem completely. The King James translation solves the problem. I'm not a Ph.D. in Biblical and New Testament studies, so I, I can't give you a definitive answer. But there are ways to handle this difficult passage. Exodus 12:40, the 430 years, whereas Acts 7:6 says 400 years. There are other verses that say 400 years. One other verse, Genesis 15:13, 13, 
Well, before we do that, let's look at another 430-year verse. That's Galatians 3.17. Paul says this to the Galatians. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, later than what? Later than the promise to Abraham. The law, which came 430 years later, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and canceled the promise. So Paul is assuming that the time Paul, that Abraham arrived in Israel, he, had the, he, he got the covenant relatively quickly. 430 years later, you have the Exodus. So there's no problem there. The 430 years is not a problem. The problem is when it says 400 years. And then the next thing you have to say is, well, is 400 years a roundoff error or not? Or do you want to say, well, it's 400 years from the oppression and slavery that, that Israel experienced from the, from the pagans surrounding Abraham? That's the first problem, to reconcile the 400. The second problem is Exodus 12:40 says the time of the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years, most of the English translations, but actually it was in Egypt and in the land of Canaan. As the Greek Septuagint says, why don't the English translations have it? If it's in there, you got no problem. And the King James is ambiguous enough where it just says sojourning in general, not sojourning in Egypt, was 430 years. All right, enough of that little textual problem. We want to have something to say to the liberals who love to sit around here and say, oh, there's errors in the Bible. The Bible is not inerrant and infallible inspired, but I, it, it makes me feel good, so I'm going to be a good Christian and have a Bible full of errors. Pretty soon, the next thing you know, well, the resurrection didn't really happen. That's just a symbol of the hope and inspiration Jesus, the martyred Jesus, gave to his disciples. But he didn't really walk out of that grave. Nonsense! Acts 7, verse 7, I will judge the nation. This is Stephen continuing with his speech here. I will judge the nation that they will serve as slaves, God says. That nation, of course, is Egypt. And God said, I'm going to judge it, which they were. They, of course, got swallowed up in the Red Sea. After this, they will come out and worship me in this place. The scripture that where they will worship me in this place, that means in Israel. That was actually predicted in Genesis 15, verses 13, 14. The judgment is predicted in Exodus, Genesis 15, 13-14. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. That's, that's actually the verse that Stephen's quoting. Enslaved and oppressing, if we, if we take that from the date of Ishmael oppressing Abraham, that is 400 years, or it could be just referring to the time in the land of Canaan and, Israel, uh, Canaan and Egypt round, rounded off to 400 years when it was precisely 430 years. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. And that was my point here. Stephen is referring to the fact that Egypt is going to be judged. And then he says, after this, they will come out, the Israelites will come out, that's it, during the Exodus, and they will worship me in this place in Israel. Acts, uh, Exodus 3, verse 12, he answered, I certainly... Well, I will certainly be with you. That's he, God. Yahweh answered, I will certainly be with you, and this will be the sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, this is Yahweh talking to Moses. This will be the sign to you, Moses, that I have sent to you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. That, of course, is at Mount Sinai in southern Israel. Acts 7, verse 8. Then he, God, gave him, Moses, the covenant of circumcision. Excuse me, not Moses. Abraham. The covenant of circumcision. After this, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac did the same with Jacob, and Jacob with the twelve patriarchs. So this is the famous sign of the covenant, sign of the Abrahamic covenant. The scripture is in Genesis 17:10 through 11. 
This is my covenant which you are to keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. And who kept, who circumcised themselves? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the twelve patriarchs. That's Joseph, Gad, Asher, Ephraim, Manasseh, and all of his brothers, all the twelve patriarchs, the twelve tribes of Israel. Acts 7, verses 9 through 10. The patriarchs, again, that's Joseph and his eleven brothers, became jealous of Joseph. Well, in this case, it's all the patriarchs but Joseph. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, the famous coat of many colors story. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his troubles. He gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who appointed him ruler over Egypt and over his whole household. Of course, that story is told in Genesis. And all of you who were faithful in your Sunday school attendance know that story, which is well known. Now, Stephen is trying to make a point here. He showed that Israel. He is showing that Israel consistently rejected God's favorite individuals. Here's Joseph, chosen by God, and look what the patriarchs did. They sold him into slavery, just like they rejected Joseph, just like Israel did in rejecting Jesus. In fact, there's so many parallels between Joseph's life and Jesus's life that many people say that Jesus, Joseph, is a type of Jesus. But despite the evil intentions of the patriarchs, Joseph was rescued and put in a place of high honor. And the parallel is this. In spite of the wicked machinations of the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders, Jesus was raised up into heaven and is sitting at, sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Genesis thirty-seven eleven is the verse that shows that Joseph's brothers were jealous. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. We go to verse 11, Acts 7. Then a famine and great sovereign came over all of Egypt and Canaan. Stephen is continuing with his Old Testament history. And our ancestors could find no food. This famine is recorded in Genesis 41:54. And the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. He predicted it. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt there was no food. We go to Acts 7:12 through 15. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our ancestors the first time. That means... When, he, when Stephen says our ancestors, he's talking about the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob. And, of course, that's excluding Joseph because he's already down there in Egypt. The other ancestors went down. Of course, they left Benjamin behind, too. So it was, most, it was not all of the patriarchs. It was ten of them. The second time Jesus was revealed to his brothers, and Joseph's, Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Verse 14, Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all his relatives Seventy-five people in all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there. I'm not going to get into all the details of the story in Exodus. Very interesting story. The first time, if I recall, the first time, Stephen mentions the first time that Joseph, Jacob sent his Jacob sent the patriarchs down there to Egypt was when they needed food. We, get, we see that in Genesis 42, 1 through 2. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? Listen, he went on, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we will live and not die. That was the first time. And then the second time they went down there, the brothers were revealed. That's in Genesis 45, 1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants. So he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. So Stephen's more or less recounting the history of Israel as is in the Pentateuch. Now notice that Stephen says all of our forefathers died down there. He and our ancestors died there. 
he, Jacob, and our ancestors, referring to the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, they died there. And we know from the scriptures that Jacob died there, Joseph died there. We don't know from the scriptures that the patriarchs died there, but we assume that they did because there's no, well, it, because, because Stephen said they died there, even though there's no recounting of it in, in the Torah. But everybody that went down there died down there. And the last thing we need to say about this passage is in verse 14. Stephen says 75 people went down to Israel. This is after Joseph said, okay, come on back down here. We're going to give you some more food so you don't die in the famine. And it says 75, but the Masoretic, that's the Masoretic text says that. Excuse me, that's the Septuagint text says 75. The Masoretic text has 70. And so you will see a discrepancy there if you're reading an English translation of the Masoretic text. For example, Genesis 46:27, And Joseph's sons who were born to him in Egypt, two persons, all those of Jacob's household who had come to Egypt, 70 persons. Exodus 1, 5. The total number of Jacob's descendants was 70. Joseph was already in Egypt. Deuteronomy 10:22. Your fathers came down to Egypt, 70 people in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky. The Septuagint adds, adds five more people at Genesis 46:20. I don't know why. This is in a study Bible. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown all point this out. There's one son of Manasseh added, two sons of Ephraim, one grandson of Manasseh, and one grandson of Ephraim. I don't know why that happens. There are other ways to resolve the contradiction between 70 and 75. John Gill's got a way, but it's so complicated to take a rocket scientist to understand it. And I always think on the principle of parsimony, Occam's razor, let's take the simplest explanation. It's much easier, much more likely to be true. So I just think that's a translation problem between the Masoretic and the Septuagint. Uh, Luke was using the Septuagint, and the translators of Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy were using the Masoretic text, the, the English translators, and it came out 70 instead of 75 because they used a different text. We go to verse 16. We'll finish it up for this audio. Acts 7, verse 16. Our patriarch, i got to go get back, go back and get the subject of the verb here. Let me start with verse 15. Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. Now, Shechem is between Ebal and Gerizim. It's in Samaria. It was the capital of Samaria for a long time. It is a famous place in Old Testament history. It's right, say, south and west of the southern end of the Sea of Galilee. And it's where Abraham first showed up. But Abraham didn't buy. Now, this is the here's where the problem is. Abraham didn't buy a tomb at Shechem. But Stephen says he did. The patriarchs were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for some of silver from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. All right, so we've got to reconcile that. We do know that Abraham brought land at Hebron, not Shechem. Hebron is way down to the south, halfway down the western coast of the sea of the Dead Sea down on the desert down there, and that place at Hebron was Ephron's field at Machpelah near Mamre, so Hebron is the general area. The more Pacific area is Ephron's field at Machpelah near Mamre. They became Abraham's possession in the presence of all the Hittites, and we know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried there from Genesis 25, 35, and 50. We can read that the, those three patriarchs were buried at Hebron. Now, who bought the land at Shechem? Again, Shechem's in the north between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Well, it was Jacob. 
Genesis 33, 18 through 19. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred casitas. Now we know that Joseph was buried at Shechem. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were buried at, at Hebron in the, near the Oaks of Mamre in the cave of Machpelah. We know that because that's in Genesis and we know that Joseph was carried, his bones were carried by Moses out of Israel long after he died by Moses, out of Egypt, I'm sorry, long after he died by Moses. And Moses carried the bones up. Moses died. Joshua ended up burying Joseph at Shechem. Joshua 24:32. Joseph's bones, which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the parcel of land Jacob had purchased, not Abraham, but Jacob had purchased from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred casitas. All right, so now we got a problem because Genesis, uh, Joshua clearly says that Jacob had bought that land, and that was in Joshua 24:32, and Genesis 33 verse 19 clearly says that Jacob purchased the field at Shechem, where Joseph was buried. Now, just to keep all this clear in our minds here, let's look at Acts 7:16. The patriarchs were carried back to Shechem. All right, we've got two problems here. First of all, problem number one, who was buried in the tomb at Shechem? Now, Genesis clearly says that it was Joseph that was buried at the tomb at Shechem. And yet here in Acts 7, verses 14 and 15, we find Stephen saying this. Joseph then invited his father Jacob, and Jacob went down, verse 15, to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there. So it sounds like we're Stephen's talking about Jacob in verse 15. Then we get to verse 16, and Stephen says this, He and our ancestors, Jacob and our ancestors, were carried back to Shechem. Well, Jacob wasn't buried in Shechem. Jacob was buried in Hebron in the south, not Shechem in the north. How do you solve that problem? This is how I solve it. The reference that Stephen is making to, to that pronoun he, in verse 15, he and our ancestors died there, died there at Shechem? No, the he is referring to Joseph. Verse 14, Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, and Jacob went down to Jesus. He, Joseph, and our ancestors, the other patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, died there at Shechem. And that accords with history, or at least it accords with Joseph being buried at Shechem. We have to make an argument that the other patriarchs, the brothers of Joseph, were buried at Shechem because the Bible is not clear. But at any rate, we know that Jacob wasn't buried there at Shechem, so the, the he in verse 15 of Acts 7 cannot refer to Jacob dying there at Shechem because he didn't. All right, that takes care of problem number one. Now, here's problem number two. Stephen says that in verse 16 that Abraham bought the field at Shechem, whereas Genesis clearly says Jacob bought the field at Shechem, as I pointed out to you. I read to you the verses Genesis 33, 18 through 19, and Joshua 24 through 32 that clearly show that Jacob bought that field, and yet Stephen says that Abraham did. All right, well, how do we explain this? Now, this is a very difficult problem, as all the commentators say. I'm going to give you some uh, attempted solutions. First solution, NIV Study Bible. Stephen greatly compresses the Old Testament account as a rhetorical advice, making Abraham buying the field instead of Jacob. According to the NIV study Bible, this sounds real strange to us, but it would be well understood by Stephen's hearers. Well, I'm not an expert in Hebrew literature, and I don't know whether that sounds good to them or not. It sure sounds strange to me. So I've got a problem with that one. Option number two. 
Abraham is an interpolation, a clerical error, in other words, a textual error. It should be Jacob. Well, it would be nice if we could find some manuscripts that showed that, but there are no manuscripts that show Jacob there instead of Abraham. So that is a highly suspect, suspect solution. Option number three, the phrase there should be translated which he, referring to Jacob, which he bought for Abraham. So the scripture would read in verse 16, the bones were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for Jacob. <laughs> well, I don't know how you get the translation to do that. John Gill says that. That sounds iffy to me. I'm not an expert in languages, so I don't know. Option number four, Abraham means a son of Abraham because children are sometimes called by their father's name. So that it would read the bones were carried, the patriarchs were carried back to Shechem and were placed in the tomb that the son of Abraham had bought for a son of silver. The son of Abraham? Well, it says Abraham. It doesn't say the son of Abraham, so I don't know. Option number five, Abraham bought the tomb when he first arrived in the promised land from Haran. He sold it, and then Jacob bought it later. And so both Stephen and Moses and Joshua write when, they, when Stephen assigns the purchase to Abraham, and Genesis and Joshua assigns the purchase to Jacob. Now, if you think about that, that might make a little bit of sense, because when Abraham just arrived in the promised land, it would make sense that he would buy a tomb. And then after he got settled in and moved further down to the south, ended up going down there near Egypt, and in Hebron and so forth, they said, I don't need it anymore, I'll sell it. And then Jacob, for whatever reason, bought it later. That comes from a guy named Butt, B-U-T-T, from Apologetics Press. Maybe so. Option number six, Abraham bought the tomb, but Jacob bought a field near the tomb. So Abraham, he first arrives in the promised land. It makes sense he would buy a tomb. And then Jacob comes back to the promised land after he comes back out of Egypt. And he says, okay, I need a place to put the bones of my children. I think I'll buy the field near the tomb. That's another option. Option number seven, Stephen just made a mistake. He meant to say Jacob, and he said Abraham instead. Now, this has no implications for inerrancy. Luke is inerrant, not Stephen. Luke could have iner inerrantly recorded Stephen making a mistake. So that's it's not, there's no doctrinal problem here. But there is a practical problem. Why would Stephen make such a mistake? That's an egregious mistake. And Stephen was very, very well acquainted with Jewish history, so much so that he wouldn't make an error like this. This is what Alfred Barnes says. And by the way, Luke himself would not have made an error like that, too, if he was trying to record Jewish history. He, he probably wouldn't have made an error like this. So that's problematical. Here's an option number eight. The names of different generations are often used interchangeably to show interconnectedness in Jewish literature. For example, in Hebrews 7, we got Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, and we know doggone well it wasn't Levi that paid tithes to Melchizedek. It was Levi's ancestor, Abraham, that paid tithes to Melchizedek. But Levi is considered to be in the loins of Abraham, and so Levi was actually paying tithes when Abraham was paying the tithes. That option is hurt a little bit by the fact that here it would be the father is put in place of the son. If the father Abraham is put in place of the son, Jacob is buying that tomb. Whereas in Hebrews 7, it was the son, Levi, that's put in place of the father's reversed. But still, you got that idea of the interchangeableness of generations. And I suspect a lot of this has to do with the fact that I don't know Hebrew culture well enough to get a feel for that. But anyway, it's a bodacious problem. 
And we can solve it however we want, but the one thing we need to remember, Luke didn't make a mistake. Even if Stephen made a mistake, Luke didn't make a mistake. You cannot prove that the scriptures are errant using this as a club. Ladies and gentlemen, with that difficult problem, oh, let me finish with by this. Let's say, let's take this phrase, carried back, verse 16, we're carried back. We have to get the subject of that verb, we're carried back from verse 15, Jacob went down to Egypt. Ah, but let's go back to verse 14, Joseph then invited his father Jacob and all his relatives, 75 and all, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He and our ancestors died there. He referring to Joseph, he and our ancestors died there. Because Jacob didn't die at Shechem, Joseph died at Shechem. He and our ancestors died there and were carried back to Shechem. Now we know Joseph was carried back to Shechem because the scripture explicitly tells us in Exodus 13:18 through 19, this is the KGV, but God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea and the children of Israel went up and harnessed out of the land of Egypt. They went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. That's the point I'm looking at. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones away hence with you. So Moses carries Joseph's bones up to Shechem, and Joseph is buried there. So we know that. But now in Acts, Stephen says that he, Joseph, and our ancestors, so the patriarchs, were also buried at Shechem. Stephen says that. The Bible doesn't say it any other place. A gentleman named Wayne Blank said that they were buried in Egypt because if they'd have been carried out, we would assume mention would have been made. But there's a problem with saying the patriarchs were buried in Egypt. I believe they were buried in Shechem. First of all, Stephen says Jacob and our ancestors, in verse 15, were buried at Shechem, verse 16. If Joseph was the only person buried at Shechem, then Stephen is just wrong, and I don't think Stephen would be that wrong. He said Jacob and our ancestors, plural, and he also said these ancestors were in addition to Jacob, not just Jacob, but Jacob and the ancestors were buried at Shechem. If the other patriarchs were buried in Egypt, well, then it would only be Joseph buried in Shechem, and Stephen would make a mistake. Now, another argument is from Alfred Barnes. No mention is made in the Old Testament of their carrying the bones of any of the other patriarchs, but the thing is highly probable in itself. If the descendants of Joseph carried his bones, it would naturally occur to them to take also the bones of each of the patriarchs to give them an honorable sepulcher together in the land of promise. Hear, hear. I believe that's what happened. Well, with that difficult verse, we finished our audio in verse 16. We'll continue the defense of Stephen to the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, verse 17. See you next audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.